five in Kenya made a decision to do something that to this day still has an impact on some of the folks in that country. He decided that he would be crucified just as Christ was so that he could pay for the sins of the people of Kenya. He carried a cross up a hill and his wife nailed him to that cross against her wishes but at his insistence and as a result of that she passed away perhaps a heart attack perhaps a shock that she experienced whatever the case might be but he was then crucified and said that he was dying for the sins of the people of Kenya neighbors of his finally brought him down from the cross but because of the infliction of the wounds by the nails that were used to hang him there, he passed away as well. To this day, people still go to that hill and pray to Daniel that their sins would be forgiven. Now, what was in the heart of a man like that who would do such a a deed? I, I can't begin to to know but I would suspect this if you're going to take such a dramatic step and do something so dramatic there is probably uh, an intensity of desire and probably a good intention I would suspect that within his own mind he thought that perhaps by sacrificing himself the way Christ had done he could do something not only to atone for his own sins but to atone for the sins of others that would come to him for their salvation. What a mistake. What a terrible conclusion to come to. No matter how sincere he may have been, his conclusion was absolutely wrong. He was substituting himself for something that only God coming in the flesh could do, which is to die for our sins, to take the punishment of our sins upon himself and pay for those sins as the great I am. God come in the flesh. Daniel was not God. Daniel may have been sincere, but Daniel was sadly mistaken. And what we have today is probably not nearly as extreme in its outworking. But we still have people who believe that they can substitute things for that which only Christ can do and for that which only Christ can give. If you will go back with me, please, to the book of Romans and look with me at Romans, the 10th chapter, once again, What we begin to find here is the Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of his desire to see Israel saved. And so he says in the first verse, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's what he wants. That's what he longs to see. The people of Israel coming to know Christ as their Savior. But he recognizes reality. He recognizes the truth. And the truth is that the problem that the Israelites were having was they were substituting zeal for knowledge. 
They were very zealous in their endeavors, but they didn't understand what the truth really was. So he goes on in verse 2 to say, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, when you read something like that, you, you realize that, that zeal is, is often recognized as something positive. You can look at that which is zealous in a good light. Uh, the apostles, for example, they were very, very zealous in serving Christ. As a matter of fact, if historians are relatively accurate, and, and I don't know how they would arrive at this, but by the end of the first century, the belief was that there were over 500,000 believers and followers of Christ. Now, when you consider that began with just a handful of individuals, and within a period of a little over, uh, maybe even a little less than 70 years, Half a million people are reached with the gospel of Christ. How could that happen? These individuals were very, very zealous. They used their energies, they used their strengths, they used their resources, they used their capabilities to carry out a work that ultimately made an impact upon the society, not only in which they were living, but reaching to the ends of what was the known world at that time. And so you see that positive side of being zealous. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was zealous. Do you remember that shortly after he began his earthly ministry, one of the first events that took place in his life was when he entered the temple and cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He released the, the sacrificial birds that were, were being offered uh, at the temple. And he said that you, you shall not make my house, a house of my father's house, a house of merchandise. And, but you have turned it into a, a den of thieves. And, and this was to be a house of prayer. And then the Bible says this. The the disciples remembered what had been written about the coming Christ. And do you remember what, what the psalmist said? The zeal of your house has eaten me up. Christ was zealous. There is nothing wrong with zeal in and of itself. But if zeal is bereft of knowledge, if it does not have knowledge at the very base of it, then you run into the problem that the Jews were, were facing. They were very zealous. You, you look at the way they lived their lives and, and, and look at the, 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 uh, the type of lives that the, the Pharisees lived in, in expressing their views and in, in propagating the things that they held to. In Christ's day, there is a tremendous amount of activity spiritually. There was a lot of religiousness that was taking place. There were those that were extremely zealous, quote unquote, for the Lord. And the same thing is true today. There are those who are very zealous, but they really lack knowledge. They lack understanding. You recall that there was a man by the name of Apollos, and in the detrimental area of zeal, the Bible tells us about this Apollos, what had happened with him was he had somehow been exposed to the gospel of Christ, and he trusted Christ. The Bible gives us a little bit of a description of what kind of a guy he was. He had to have been a very sharp individual. And the Bible says that 
For what he knew, he accurately presented Christ. Now the knowledge that he had would be based upon the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been able to identify those portions of God's word that were written specifically concerning the person of Christ. And you have that throughout the Old Testament. If you embrace and believe what the Old Testament says, you see a very clear picture of the coming Messiah. You you know what he has to do in sacrifice and in death before he comes as the ruling king. And apparently Apollos had been a real student of the word. And he knew the word of God thoroughly. But his knowledge was incomplete. Now he was zealous... But he didn't have it all together yet. So there were two followers of Christ who had been discipled by the apostles by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And they heard Apollos speaking and they recognized that there was a gap in that which he was presenting. And so they took him, the Bible says, and instructed him more thoroughly because all he knew about was the baptism of John which was a baptism of repentance. Now baptism is designed for the purpose of demonstrating a commitment to Christ, a faith in him that identifies us with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So they instruct him now on the specifics of what it is that Christ accomplished at the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says that now he took his knowledge and he combined it with the zeal that he had and he went on to continue to serve the Lord faithfully and to proclaim the truth about Christ. That's that's one element of detrimental zeal without knowledge. Very, very limited, very minor. But then there's another dimension of zeal without knowledge. And it becomes a little bit more serious. And this is a dimension where individuals who have a desire to honestly serve the Lord, but are well unequipped to carry out a work for God, and yet they thrust themselves into a ministry that soon demonstrates their inability to communicate truth. Okay, that that was very confusing. Here's what I'm talking about. Sometimes within church settings, individuals will come to know Christ as their Savior. And so, depending upon their background, they will be taken because you get really excited when people come to know Christ. And you're really thankful that God has provided more believers who can become involved in carrying out ministry so that the work of God will grow. Sometimes neophytes are taken and thrust into positions of teaching because maybe they're a teacher, but they've not really understood the spiritual implications of what Christ did. They don't fully grasp what the Word of God has to say. They're not even capable of rightly dividing the Word of truth. And yet, they're thrust into a position of teaching. Uh, Sometimes, a businessman is led to faith in Christ. And because he has business acumen, he is taken and he's made a 
deacon because now we've got a good businessman to help us with our finances and with the, the material dimensions of our, our uh, property. And what they don't understand is that a businessman may have good principles by which we can embrace good directions, but the problem that they have is they don't have the spiritual understanding to know that for believers, our understanding of what the Lord is accomplishing has to go beyond business principles into the realm of spiritual issues. And you'll see people get thrust into positions of leadership. One of the things that our church practiced before I ever got here and still practices to this day is, number one, it takes effort to become a member of our church. You've got to really mean it because you have to sit through four hours of class with me. And then, in addition to that, you get interviewed by two of our elders and then the elder board votes on their recommendation And that recommendation comes before the congregation for the body of believers to vote. That takes time. That's exactly right. That's part of the plan. We want there to be time. We want time for people to observe us and for us to observe them and to see if they really know what they're talking about, and if they need further instruction, and if people are developed spiritually, then they can begin in gentle areas of leadership. They can begin ministries that they become involved in, and little by little grow into those positions because their knowledge is increasing, and the knowledge becomes the foundation of their zeal. There is a mission agency that I've had um, a number of contacts with that is one of the larger mission agencies in the country. And observing some of the missionaries, and I I believe they're good people. I believe that they, they genuinely love the Lord. But I've noticed a tremendous amount of zeal that often is not accompanied with knowledge. And I had a chance to actually be at a series of meetings that was being uh, that were being taught by the the director of that mission agency and um, when he was done with one of the questions um, or I should say with one of his presentations I had a chance to talk to him afterwards and I asked him I said uh, now uh, what kind of doctrinal training do you provide for those that you send out as missionaries? And his response was, we're not that concerned about doctrine. That reminds me of the Jews. There are people that really, they, they love the Lord, but their knowledge of Him is extremely limited. They get out on the field. They can't handle the issues that they face. And it just creates all sorts of problems. Now, not to say that there aren't well-trained missionaries with that particular agency, but by the director's own mouth, he said that doctrine was not all that big a deal to them. Then what do you teach? It was a big deal to Christ. It was a big deal to the apostles. It's a big deal to the Father. Why wouldn't it be a big deal? Well, okay. 
There's a third area in which there can be detrimental zeal, and that's with people who are fully rejecting the truth of God's Word. These people may be knowledgeable in the area of their own unbelief. They may be very zealous, but their belief system is based upon that which is crumbling and falling and not true. Case in point. Yesterday, I had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house. Okay? And usually Debbie is home when this happens. And she will not let me answer the door. (laughs) And here's the thing. I am wrong. I have been wrong in my approach oftentimes to folks like that because I get very argumentative. This time, Debbie was on the retreat. (laughs) And all I can tell you is this. Before I opened the door, I saw them coming down the street, so I knew they were coming. So I had already prayed, and then before I opened the door, I said, Lord, please give me the grace to approach this the appropriate way. And we began talking. And they are very winsome. They were very nice, very neatly dressed. Um pleasant in their conversation, smiled a lot. They began to talk about the things that they believe. And so a, a way that you can approach this is really just to ask questions. Uh, and, and we were, the, part of the reason that I had mentioned earlier about that song, um, I will glorify the King of Kings, I will glorify the Lord of Lords, who is the great I am. Now, you may miss some of the significance of that as you sing, but you understand that if that passage from which that title for the Lord comes is properly understood, that destroys the Jehovah's Witness theology, which is that Christ is less than co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, but he is still a God. Which, by the way, I, don't you hate it when you think of questions after people leave? I, I thought of this. They say we believe in three gods, which we don't. We believe in a God whose nature is holy. It is love. It is truth. It is all-powerful. It is all-knowing. It is Good. It is righteous. One God manifested in three personalities, but all sharing the same nature, the same attributes, a single God. They do not worship more than one God. Oh, yes, they do. And I didn't think of this until after they were gone. Ah! The New World, boy, I have really gotten off. The New World Translation says in John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, and we say, God. They say, a God. And the reason they say that is because in the Greek, there is no definite article in front of theos, which is God. But there's a thing called Granville Sharp's rule, the way this is written, which requires the insertion of the direct, uh, uh, the, um, Um, definite article in front of God. So it is, in the beginning was Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God. Identifies Jesus as God. Well, 
They say he was a God. And I didn't think to answer this. So then you worship more than one God. You worship the Father and the lesser God the Son. Oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you know that's going to be the answer. I'd love to hear their explanation for that. There's really no good reason I told you that other than I really blew it in my thinking. But here's what I asked them about. I said, why was it that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus when he said, before Abraham was, I am? Now you think to yourself, ah, got him. No. They've got some twisted, crazy answer, and I've heard it now from several of them. They say that the reason they wanted to kill Jesus was because he now had become a threat to the social order. Yeah, thank you. What? How does that make any sense? That makes no sense at all. He's already been a threat to the social order. Why would that one statement, before Abraham was, I am, create a problem to the Jew? It's because Jesus was now proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember the name that the Father gave himself to Moses? Who, who shall I say sent me? You tell them, I am sent you. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Now they want to kill him because he's God. Here you have these people who completely deny that. And they deny a whole variety of different passages of, of Scripture and they, they revamp things and they turn them all around. One of the questions that, that I asked was, um, the Bible tells us that Christ, God the Son, is the Creator. Now, they would not agree with the statement, God the Son. They would say that Jesus, yes, He was the Creator. By Him were all things created that are in heaven and earth, uh, whether visible and, or invisible. All things were created by Him and for Him. What does all things mean? It means all things, which means He cannot be created. Who can't be created? God! At the very heart. Well, I never gave him a chance to answer that. Because um, then, then we were on to other things that, that came up. And here, here was the one that threw them. Um, I, I made mention of the Trinity within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, somehow, I don't know how we got on this, but they brought up about the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, who, to, who is the Holy Spirit to you? He is a force. He is not a person. He is a force. So I said, um, how do you grieve a force? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. This is the first time I had one of the Jehovah's Witnesses say, I don't know. glad that they admitted that that and, and now let me back up I'll tell you this I admire the fact that they give of their Saturday mornings and they're out doing this they are sacrificing the things that we might look at and say oh that's my time and they're out doing it you know what they have they have a zeal without knowledge and it can be a very, very 
dangerous thing. You never want to substitute zeal for knowledge. As we go on in the next verse where it says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They had become so proud of their zealous approach to their religious beliefs that now they were missing the whole message of the gospel. If you look down at verse uh, 20, you, you read this. It says, but Isaiah is very bold in saying, I was found by those who did not see... Oh, that, that, that's the wrong one. That's the wrong one. Uh, look down here at verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Zeal. But they didn't know. That is a dangerous substitute. Another dangerous substitute is to substitute effort for grace. When it comes to a matter of finding forgiveness of sins and eternal life, the Jew had a course that they were following. Beginning at verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here is what was happening with the Jews. They would rather come to God the hard way than the way he prescribed. And when we talk about coming to God the hard way, there were, there were some wonderful examples of that. Look at the Pharisees. Look at the Essenes. Now, we're, we're very familiar with the Pharisees as one of the two major branches of, um, of Judaism. They were the more conservative branch. They would have adhered strictly to the law. Their belief was, we must live by the law in order to achieve righteousness before God so that He will accept us. Which meant a significant amount of self-denial, a significant amount of effort on their parts, very, very difficult within their realm, because if you offend in one part of the law, how much of the law have you broken? You've broken all of it. So they've got a real problem on their hands. Now, there was another group that we don't hear as much about, known as the Essenes. They were a group of individuals who lived a very ascetic life. They, uh, for the most part, it seems like a, 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 one of the communities of the Essenes was by the Dead Sea. And if any of you ever travel to Israel, they will take you right by the, the unearthed Essene community. It's believed that these were the people who wrote what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they placed them into this cave that took 
a couple thousand years before it was discovered. But what a discovery. Incredible verification of the truth of Scripture, the accuracy of the documents that we've had to translate our, our English Bibles. Anyway, these people lived these ascetic lives believing that if you denied yourself, they, one of the things that the Essenes would do every morning, they would take, I, it had to have been a cold bath. Uh, you ever get in cold water? You know, I do it, if my grandkids are around and the pool is cold, I'll try to act like it doesn't bother me. But you get down into that water and it's like, (laughs) you know, and inside you're just, what have I done? And you, you try to put on a show for people and stuff. These guys would do this every morning. They would deny themselves food. They would practice a restriction of interactions, and uh, very, very disciplined in their study of the Old Testament Scriptures. They, they were trying to come the hard way. Then, you had people who were almost approaching the possibility of having forgiveness in life in a way that would be impossible to achieve. And quite frankly, the, the Pharisees and the Essenes were, were taking that approach. Paul says something here that's very, very interesting. He kind of throws out, I don't know that I would call this sarcastic, but it would be close to being sarcastic. Did, did it kind of take you those verses where it says in verse 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from death. What that comes down to is they, they were attempting things that were impossible. Nobody can go to heaven to bring Christ down. And certainly no one can go into an abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. He has already risen from the dead. So here are people that are trying to win their way into God's favor through impossible tasks. Keeping the law was impossible. Fulfilling a realm of righteousness in place of the sin that we have committed for the purpose of atonement is impossible. And so what Paul is saying is this. You try to come to God in ways that just are absolutely impossible. Instead of coming to the Lord His way. His way is very simply based upon the provision that He provided through the sacrifice of Christ and by accepting the grace of God, which is the free gift that He offers that is in opposition to what we deserve. He's not merely giving us something good. He is giving us the opposite of what we deserve by extending His grace. And so, now you have this presentation of the truth of the Gospel that comes that we often quote. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What Paul is saying is, if you confess, what does the word confess mean? It means to say the same thing about. 
So if you confess the Lord Jesus, what does it mean to say the same thing that God says about the Son, God the Son? What is it that I have to agree with in order to be saved? I have to agree with what God said the Son and who the Son is. I have to believe that He is God. Uh, I'm just going to tell you this right now. I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses are going to heaven. They can talk about believing in Jesus, but if you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, you're not believing in the Jesus you need to believe in to be saved. So, here we have the recognition that the Father identifying the Son as the eternal God with Him. You need to embrace that. You need to say the same thing that God says about the sacrifice of Christ. The substitutionary sacrifice where Christ died the sin uh, died for our sins. He, he took the penalty that we deserve upon Himself. You have to believe that His death was completely accepted as the final sacrifice for sins. And Christ offered a sacrifice that would require no more sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. I was listening to the radio this morning and and one of the songs that they play, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then you also have to believe in His resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, the sacrifice of Christ would be meaningless because we would have no evidence that the Father accepted the sacrifice of Christ. But Christ rose from the dead and because He lives... We too shall live. What a blessing. That's the easy way. I made the provision for your sin. I extend to you my grace. And if you will believe in your heart that I raised Christ from the dead, you will be saved. And the confession of the mouth is the outworking of that which has already taken place in the heart. It would be similar to the verse that says, believe and be baptized to be saved. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. But the two go together. The same thing is true with trusting in Christ. When, when we believe in our hearts, we say it with our mouth. Do you believe in Jesus? Wow! All right, we got a lot of people here need to get saved. (laughs) If you believe in Jesus, you testify to that through your mouth. It's not keeping the law. It's not living by any man-made standards. Paul says, you accept the grace of God, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He gives us a final view here in these remaining verses where there is the the problem of the status of the Jew. 
He says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So in other words, the status is not the issue. The issue is now the relationship. He goes on to say, For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some try to elevate different classes of people into more favorable positions with God. It is the Jewish mind, even to this day, that says, I will be okay before God because I'm a Jew. Have you heard, have you heard them talk about that? Have you interacted with Jewish people? And they will tell you, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Why? Why? Oh, well, I'm part of God's chosen people. Uh, we, we get to go to heaven automatically. Wait a minute. God says, no. There is no favoritism. Not Jew, nor Gentile. Just because we're not Jews, for the most part, maybe some of you have a Jewish background, but, but we're all on the same level. We all need to trust Christ. There's neither bond nor free. There are people who serve in realms of, of uh, servanthood, of, of, of being slaves. Well, the free person has no advantage over them. There's neither male nor female. Keep in mind that is purely a spiritual understanding. It has nothing to do with mixing of genders. Which, <laughs> oh. um, Women, men all have to come the same way. Faith in Jesus Christ. There is no special class. We all come on the same basis. Sinners who recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us, who gives us through faith in Him a relationship with our God. And He makes that available to everyone. Do you know who in this room can be a follower of Christ? Everybody. Everybody. No one is excluded. Doesn't mean that you're not excluded if you haven't exercised faith in Christ. You must respond. You must trust Him as your Savior. There's nobody whose sin has been too bad. To have that sin forgiven and be granted freely the gift of life. There's never been a failure so great that God cannot forgive it. Why? Not because your sin is so great. It's because our Savior is greater. His blood cleanses from all sin. Who knows? Maybe somebody in this room has murdered somebody. Can that sin be forgiven? Yes, absolutely. Maybe you've been an adulterer and you've been unfaithful to your mate. Can that sin be forgiven? Yes. Now here's the deal. There are always consequences that follow sin. I'm not saying you lose the consequence. If you're a murderer, don't tell me. Because I will tell the police. Oh, what about uh, confidentiality? That goes out the window when you've broken the law. I just want you to know that. Don't come to me and confess some crime. Because if you've committed a crime, 
we're going to deal with it. I'll let, you st- I'll, I'll let you go, but if you don't, I will. Okay? Everybody understand where we're coming from with that? All right. Three people in the balcony just walked out. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who can be saved? Everybody. What an incredible blessing it is to be able to know that Christ died for our sins, to be able to receive the benefits of that death because of God's grace, and to know that there is not an issue of being privileged because I'm a certain so-and-so, but being able to come into a relationship with God because I exercise faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for me at the cross of Calvary. Don't anybody, don't anybody leave here today without putting your trust in Christ. Will you trust Him right now? I believe that Jesus died. You know what this guy said. I believe this. Jesus died for my sins. I trust in Him as my Savior. And when you do, tell us. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege it is to look into this passage of Your Word and to once again be reminded of the depths of Your grace. To recognize how fortunate we are to be in a position even today to leave this building as your children followers of Christ I thank you Father for the power of your Holy Spirit and for the work that he will do it's in Jesus name we pray Amen God bless you